This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. To the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Things getting somewhat magical on episode 236 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and the reason I say that is we're going to hop on the Wave Rider this week. And talk about Legends of Tomorrow. Can't believe that the show is already going to be in its fourth season. Going to be premiering on Monday, October the 22nd. Going to be talking to the cast about what to expect from that. And not only that, another triple-decker of Geektainment and reviews this week. Supergirl, Charmed. We've also got so much more. How about Arrow Season 7 premiere? Yeah, that's all going to be happening. So it sounds like... We've got a lot to get to. Let's not waste any time. Up next, some comics and what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Jody LaHoop, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Make sure you have a full charge when you turn on that laptop or your tablet. You don't need to charge your long box. Just pull it out, because whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And we're going to go for the first time on the show to the Sandman Universe, the new imprint from DC Comics, to talk about Lucifer number 1, and boy is it different. It's written by Dan Waters, of course, we've had on the show before. Max and Sebastian Fumara doing the illustrations, Dave McCaig doing the colors, and Steve Wands on the letters. Great cover, by the way, by Jock, which should be absolutely no surprise. Now, there's a couple things going on here in this book. There's a couple different storylines, and the first one deals with Lucifer himself. So it seems to sort of be trapped in a small town, which seems fairly mundane at the time. And and really, when I say small town, it almost looks like a tiny little town on like the French countryside or something like that. Not a whole lot of people there. Sort of a yellow hue to everything. And it doesn't seem like hell. But for Lucifer, it is. And for whatever reason, 
He's kind of lost his mind too. I mean, he he seems like the 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 town loon, like he's like he's ranting and crazy. Everybody else seems fairly normal, but he's ranting and crazy and almost like he, like he's being taken care of, like a deranged mental patient. And that's kind of the vibe that I got. And he also seems like you know, he appears very ragged, ragged clothing, and he seems like he's very thin and and malnourished, and all of these things. And he just feels that he is trapped. And whatever this place is. And then you also have Detective John Decker, whose name sounds familiar, who's dealing with his wife and the illness that she's suffering with. She, But she's been keeping something from him at the same time that we find out at some point in the book. She's actually she's unable to tell him exactly what it is and is unable to. And this kind of leads to a very strange set of circumstances. And he ends up taking a trip that is going to try and answer those questions for him. We also find out at the end what is going on in the first couple pages, which at first seemed kind of out of place. We don't see, we know that one of the characters is Lucifer, and part of that is, you know, you see the piano there, you kind of make that connection, especially to Tom Ellis's Lucifer in the TV series, which these two things couldn't be further apart. So don't get, don't get that in your head, but that's kind of one of the reasons that I knew that this was Lucifer. So it seems out of place at first, and then at the end, it sort of makes sense because it doesn't really necessarily answer much what happens at the end of this book, but it certainly validates that beginning part. That much I can I can really tell you. And there's a character that looks like they they will be playing a pivotal role in why Lucifer is in the predicament that he's in in the present day. That I think that that is as much information as I could tell you without spoiling anything. As far as the art, it's very rugged, and it really suits the storyline well in both cases, especially when we have the Decker storyline. There's just a hue that brings out this sense of constant despair that he's suffering with. And they talk, in, in one part of the book, they talk about the stress that he's under. And you, you really, that is really brought through in the art in that storyline. I mean, the, the art in the, in the portions where it was Lucifer was good as well, but especially I just I was really blown away by the art in the Decker storyline. Even though it's the same artists, it just really, really seemed more vivid in that story, and that and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'll be honest; most of these Sandman universe books that I've read, I had I had very little clue what the hell was going on, and I, I like to think that I'm a very smart person. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you're sleep-deprived. You don't get something. You have to read it over again. I, I could tell you that there's some of these that I've read over several times. I'm like, I just don't get it. And unless maybe you're deep, steeped in the Sandman lore and you really, really, this is your thing, maybe you don't know. And while I've read the books, I'm not steeped in it like some fans are. So maybe that, that that's partially my fault in not really knowing what's going on. But with this one, I felt like I could follow it fairly well and it seemed like it was able to stand on its own at the same time I wasn't doing backflips over this so I'm going to give this a pickup give it a couple more issues to see how things pan itself out and you know there's a lot of obviously with it being Lucifer being a lot of religious overtones in a book like this so I'm very curious to see how this story kind of maneuvers in the next couple of episodes and I think that'll the next couple of issues and I think that'll decide whether or not I'm going to continue reading this book or not. 
As we stick with the paranormal realm, The Exorcisters number one from Image Comics. It's another book we're going to talk about this week. It's Ian Boothby on the writing. Giselle Lagasse, or Lagasse. I mean, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm good with either one. Hopefully she is too, doing the art. Pete Penzasis doing the colors, and Taylor Esposito on the letters. Now, this book couldn't be more different than the book I just talked about. This story follows Kate and Kate Harrow who were paranormal investigators that sort of specialize in the occult. Very lighthearted theme throughout this entire book, by the way, in case you're wondering right off the bat. You're investigating something that happens at a wedding that kind of left the bride without a groom. That's much as I'm really going to tell you without spoiling the story because any more would really kind of spoil the entire thing. Now, Kate with a C is serious in all business, and Kate with a K is the fun-loving one. So they sort of have... This sisterly dynamic going on, you and you think that they're sisters in the beginning of the book. That's kind of what's implied. They're having a, they just have a very fun dynamic. It made the book very, very enjoyable to watch them play off of one another. Now we also get to take a hilarious trip down to hell, and that's part of the investigation that they're doing. And even when the investigation concludes, the fun really doesn't stop there. I mean, there's this book is fun. From start to finish. That was the theme of this book. I was just purely enjoyed reading this story from start to finish. I laughed. I was engaged in what was going on. I instantly loved the characters. And there really isn't much of an origin or anything. This book just sort of jumps right into the story and the characters. And it works out just fine. And a lot of times for me, that's a criticism where I would normally say, how do you expect me to care about these characters? If you don't give me any information about them or give me a sense of how they got to where they are and who, why they are, who they are with this, it was, they were written so well and they, and this book was just so fun. It didn't matter. I felt like I gravitated towards them without knowing who they were. And that is not an easy thing to do. So I I certainly connected with these characters right away and thought that they were really fun and wanted to see more regardless of what was happening. Now, we do get a couple of very interesting reveals in the final couple of pages of the book, That one that directly deals with Kate and Kate and one that I guess still deals with them but more of an indirect way, not with their being specifically. You'll understand this once you read the book and you really should. You'll understand why I'm dancing around this, whereas that one's more direct and one is more of an indirect. And it may be setting up things for more of an ongoing story in this first arc and maybe even beyond. So while this is sort of like a villain of the week story for this one, I guess to kind of introduce you to the dynamic of the book and tell you why these characters are so fun in the first place, these final couple pages kind of set us up for, all right, well, here's what we're going to do with the rest of the story. That doesn't mean there won't be like a Villain of the Week sort of persona, but I think that we're going to focus on this now that we've seen these last couple of pages. The art was really solid. I, I, it almost reminded me of an Archie comic style of art, but with way more of an edge. And the, again, the sister dynamic between Kate and Kate, just so fun. And the story, the way it played out, even though, you know, you... you it was not the brightest of stories. Let's put it that way. There, there's some crazy stuff going on in here, and there's a really it's something that's going to make you pretty angry, I think, that happens in this story once you see the, the conclusion of it. But at the same time, it felt fun 
the entire time and and the investigation didn't drag out and where it took you it was just a fun ride and i know i've said fun like a thousand times but i cannot stress enough this book was just fun and there's a lot of serious stuff in your pull box i'm sure and that's great and there's a lot of great storytelling this is great storytelling along with being super super fun and i'm so glad that I decided to read The Exorcisters number one from Image Comics because this is one I've got to have every week, especially if it's going to be this much of a good time. This is definitely a pull for me and one that you're going to want to read and enjoy for months and months to come. I can't. I really hope that this book goes on for a long time if this is how it's going to be. It's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Yep, it's another triple dose of geek tame and we'll dive right in. With my spoiler-filled review of Supergirl next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Chris Vance from Supergirl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Supergirl is everywhere. That's one of the first things we saw on the Supergirl Season 4 premiere this past Sunday on The CW. Going to give you a spoiler-filled review, or my thoughts anyway, of that Season 4 premiere. And it starts out really great. Supergirl is literally everywhere, saving everyone, and... Even Kara's like, I feel like the world's in such a good place right now. And then you slowly but surely start to unravel things and find out that that is not necessarily the case. Now, I'm not going to go through point by point of every little thing that happened in season four, but I just wanted to point out some things that really, really stood out to me. And one thing was Mercy Graves. And I'm going to single out Mercy here because not only did I think they did a fantastic job bringing her about in this season so far. But, I mean, just how cold-blooded and brutal she is and how, you know, just stoic she was, really. I mean, unflappable, it seemed like. And, I mean, you want to talk about somebody that could go toe-to-toe with almost anyone. When she's fighting Alex at one point in this episode, not only is she holding her own, she's kind of taking it to Alex a little bit there. And, I mean, I know she had to run away from Supergirl, but still, I mean, she you know, did a pretty good job of at least subduing her anyway earlier on in the episode. So as far as Mercy Graves goes, I was excited to see Mercy in this season anyway. I'm even more excited now. And then, of course, you find out that she's tied in with Agent Liberty and everything that's going on there. We don't get a whole lot. I mean, we get a look at Agent Liberty, but we don't get a whole lot of Agent Liberty in this episode, which I actually didn't miss. The Flash kind of did the same thing with Cicada. Didn't really get a good look, but got a nice look at the end. It was virtually the same thing. Going to be talking about Arrow a little bit later, so I'll get to that here in a minute. But one of the other things that I really, really loved about this episode were the interactions between Kara and Naya. Of course, you know that Naya is going to go on to become Dreamer at some point, but that's further down the road. One thing I really loved, and I actually was going back and forth with Angie Dahl on Twitter about this. She's a reporter for uh, Comic Book Resources and kind of an independent writer for a bunch of other sites. She's very, very good. And talking about how Kara mentoring someone as Kara, not Supergirl. And, and, I, and I just thought that that was really, really interesting that they decided to go that route. And I just loved it so much. And their interactions between each other were just so genuine and so great. And and Kara saying, you know, I see myself in you. And you really do. It's almost like seeing season one Kara right in front of us. For whatever reason, it just felt like that to me. I don't know if anybody else got that vibe, 
But I certainly did. And I really hope, because if you think about it, Kara took a beating last season, didn't she? She really, really did, as, as far as Kara goes, anyway. And, and, and I really hope that we find more of that duality of her learning to be Supergirl and Kara Danvers, because, oh man, I, I just, it, I, it broke my heart to see her the way she was last year and, and how much she just didn't want to be Kara anymore. But now I think that we can find that this season. And I think this, everything that's going with Naya in the beginning of this season might really, really help with that. But, you know, we also get a glimpse of the, I'm going to call her Red Sun Supergirl. For now, I'm going to talk about that. We get a glimpse of that. We get a glimpse of the, the evil side of what's going on with these hate groups that are, you know, basically against aliens. And you get to see, you know, Jean kind of not really want to get involved, but get involved. He knows what's going on. Kara doesn't really buy it at first. And then she sees it with her own eyes. And she's frustrated, frustrated with him. And she feels like she's kind of losing him in the way he's kind of distanced himself is the best way that I could describe it. And you know, he's part of a support group and he's doing his thing to help, but he's living a peaceful life and she's going to have to find a way to respect that. So I thought that was very interesting as well. And will something draw him in? Eventually, you kind of feel like it will. You don't really want him to go against his dad's wishes, especially the way things ended last season. But at the same time, you really want to get him involved, don't you? Although, you know, I mean, you save on the budget by not having to morph into Martian Manhunter, right? So, I mean, I get that. You want to cut the budget a little bit. I Maybe I understand if that's part of the thinking here. I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying if it was, I could understand that a little bit. You know, maybe hold that off until a little bit later on in the season. The other thing I really loved was Lena Luthor playing her mom like a fiddle to get that information to help James Olsen not get prosecuted for being Guardian. I loved that. You, you, It's the Luthor coming out in her, you know? And I was watching this with my wife, and my wife says, ooh, she's going to turn on you, talking about Kara and James and everything. You kind of feel like eventually something's going to happen, right? And Lena's going to, that switch is going to flip, and the Luthor is going to come out in her, like full Luthor. And we're going to find out exactly how she's going to make her turn. I don't know if it'll be this season. I'm not saying that there won't be something that will lead to it. I kind of thought it was going to happen last season with everything that happened with her and Supergirl and how that whole relationship sort of deteriorated and clearly is still not okay at the beginning of this season. I'm just waiting for that moment. Until now, I mean, I'll enjoy Lena the way she is because I really like her character on the show. But again, I'm waiting. I'm really waiting for that turn. But for now, I think that they've got something really good going on here. We haven't even talked about Manchester Black yet. That's the thing. We haven't even seen him come into the picture yet. There's going to be a lot for Kara to deal with. And I don't know how that's going to go right now. That's the one thing that that I'm very interested to see later on is that is there going to be a point where she's going to get overwhelmed? Because that kind of seemed like it happened last season with the World Killers. And if that happens to her again, how that's going to affect her mentally, I think could be a big step in the season. And I'm not sure how that's going to go. Although, maybe Naya is the key to this whole thing. This whole thing of keeping her grounded and keeping her centered. And she still has her sister. We got a Danvers sisters moment 
in there. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but it was something. And, you know, Alex has got her stuff to deal with, with Wynn being gone and missing him and everything like that, and Brainy doing the best he can. So it, there was a lot going on in this season four premiere of Supergirl. A lot of it was good. I thought that they, they got off to a really, really good start overall. I hope they can carry that momentum throughout the rest of the season. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the season four premiere of Supergirl. Up next, going to be ta- tackling the premiere episode for the Charmed reboot that happened right after Supergirl. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Sierra Nay, and I play Hawkgirl on DC's Legends of Tomorrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to crack open the Book of Shadows and see if the power of three is enough to be a successful reboot that is the Charmed reboot that happened on the CW right after Supergirl, actually. Again, this is going to be filled with spoilers, so if you haven't had a chance to see the Charmed reboot yet, if it's sitting on your DVR, skip ahead about seven or eight minutes to the Arrow spoiler-filled review that's going to be coming up right after this. And again, I'm not going to jump into every little piece of this, And I want to preface this review before I even start by saying none of this review, not one single bit of it, will be based on anything from the original Charmed. And the reason I say that is, is first of all, I don't think it's a fair comparison. Yes, it is a reboot of a show that happened. But as I was when I was talking with the producer, one of the executive producers of the Charmed reboot at San Diego Comic-Con, she kind of said, you know, if you're rebooting something you don't want it to be like the original was otherwise you're just doing that again and sort of what's the point and maybe you think what's the point anyway because you thought there was nothing wrong with the original and i and i totally respect that but for now this is here this is in front of us let's talk about what we have in front of us and not try and go back and compare it to the original so if this stood on its own how would it be that's what i'm gonna base this on and i gotta tell you for me I thought it got off to a really, really slow start. Of course, you've got Mel, who's played by Melanie Diaz, who's the older sister. And then you have Maggie, who's played by Sarah Jeffrey, who's the younger sister. And it's kind of the typical older, younger sister dynamic. And they decide to go out. You know, mom tells them to go ahead and, you know, go ahead and go out. And then mom dies and several months pass. And then all of a sudden there's the, you know, the separation between the two sisters and one's really angry and the other one's, you know, just trying to live her life sort of thing. You know, the older, younger dynamic. And then it, it just seems like it gets off to a really, really rocky start. Then you enter Macy, who's Metal and Mantox character, who's kind of the estranged sister. And she sees the house. It's just like, oh my gosh, that I have a picture of my mom. And then when you bring her in, they're not quick to accept her at all. And and that is completely understandable. And that was very much a rocky beginning until they're literally thrown together, thanks to Harry, who's the white lighter, played by Rupert Evans, who I thought was hilarious in, that, in this episode, by the way. Very charming, very hilarious. I, I think one of the things that I really liked about this episode was, was his interactions with the Charmed Ones. I thought that that was really, really funny. I thought he, if, if there's a comic relief in this, he's certainly it. Although there were a couple of lines from the, from the girls, like saying that the, like your powers are judging you was one of my favorite lines of the entire show. If you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to describe the entire scene, but I mean, and from there it was very interesting because, you know, they, they, they tell you, okay, you have the choice whether to be witches or not. And, you know, each of them, they have their reason for wanting to do it. 
or not wanting to do it. And, and then I feel like after that, it was like they hit the gas and decided to accelerate these relationships a little bit and accelerate the fact that, you know, here are their abilities. You know, one of them can freeze time, the other one can read minds, and the other one has telekinesis, which is fine. You know, I don't, I don't mind the powers at all. But first of all, you don't really give me the, you don't give me a lot of the, okay, they don't really know how to use their powers thing. You also don't give me a whole lot of the them learning to trust each other thing. You do deal with the relationship between the older and the younger sister. You kind of have that moment where, you know, Mel and Maggie, I mean, yeah, it's Mel and Maggie sort of hash it out as to, you know, who blames who for their mother's death and how they sort of drifted apart and things like that. So you do give me a little bit of that, but I felt like, you know, that's something that was really, really rushed. And if you would have let that breathe a little bit, I mean, yes, let them agree to be witches in the first episode because apparently they were on a ticking clock and you needed to decide right away or, you know, they were going to forget everything and everything that existed as a result of their powers would go away. So that's fine. You want to put that on a ticking clock, I get it. But you could let them all agree and then sort of still be on the fence as to whether or not they want to trust each other because I really feel like they... They rushed into this relationship. I mean, you've got all of a sudden, you know, Macy's just part of the family. And maybe it's because they're reaching for that. You know, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt as far as Mel and Maggie are concerned. Maybe, you know, they lost their mother. Now they have a sister that they've never known who was very lonely growing up. And she was sort of, you know, at least in in Macy's mind, she was abandoned. The mother left her and she doesn't know what's going on here. Maybe there is an element of, well, we need to give her the family that she never had. And they move her into the house and all this stuff. And I totally understand that. But from a viewer's perspective, from the outside looking in, I would have liked to have seen that drawn out a little bit more. I'm not saying that I enjoyed the bitter, angry Mel because I really, really didn't. And that was one of the things that I thought started out slow for me in this episode. But still, if you could have hung on to that a little bit longer or even have, you know, Maggie being the one that maybe drifts towards Macy a little bit more and that being another source of friction between Mel and Maggie. Instead, it's a one big happy happy family scenario, and maybe that's not a bad thing. Maybe that's exactly the kind of thing that that shows like this need. You know, don't don't go that route. Give me give me the family bond right away, sort of thing. Okay, so I understand if you're making that perspective, but for me, I would have let that drag out a little bit longer and let them drag out the fact of how they use their powers and and, and the Book of Shadows and all of these other things. It just seems like. All of a sudden, they're defeating a evil frost demon from Game of Thrones. And I'm sorry, that's exactly what it looked like. All of a sudden, they're fighting this dude, and it doesn't seem to be very difficult for them. And and again, you don't they don't struggle there either, really. And I, I do one thing I did really like, though, is bringing the science into it. And I think that that is one thing that I'm really going to love about Macy's character. It's not just all going to be spells. She's actually going to look for... You know, okay, there's a scientific explanation for this whole witch stuff, and I'm going to find it. And I think that we're going to see solutions to problems that are real-life solutions in this demon-filled world. I think that we're going to see that. I think that's going to be really interesting. But you didn't give me enough foundation here, and I think that that was some of my biggest problems. And I definitely liked it from the middle on more than I did from the very beginning. I feel like in the very beginning anyway, 
and throughout the episode to a point. This show just tried way too hard, way too hard on almost everything. It just seemed like it, there were certain things that just felt very forced. It's like you're doing, you're, you're throwing certain things in there to, to feel like you're trying to get attention sort of thing. And then you start focusing on, once you start focusing on the sisters and their story and what's going on with mom and who's responsible for her death and really getting into that relationship, that's when it started to get good for me, even though I felt like they rushed it a little bit. And that was one of the things that frustrated me was if you didn't try so hard in the beginning, then you could have given this a little bit more time. You could have even, you might have been able to flesh this out in an episode if you'd have focused more on when Macy comes into the picture and let that draw itself out a little bit more instead of going with this, you know, this rush pledge stuff and all of this, all of these other things. It's like, I'm not saying don't have that at all, but you spent so much time on it when you could have used that and spent that with character building, which I thought a lot of these characters really, really needed. And I'm willing to give them a couple of more episodes to do that. But I feel like that's something you should have jumped right on, right? You could have saved some of the stuff they did in this first episode for future episodes as well. If you spent more time doing the character building and the sister building, by the way, the bond building between the sisters, or at least leading me up to that point, if you spent more of the first episode doing that, and then you want to jump into some of this other stuff, then I have no problem with that. But it feels like there was a lot of wasted time and opportunity in this first episode. And I really hope that's not a theme of the show going forward. I'm not giving up on the Charmed reboot. I actually did like it in stretches. And I certainly I certainly liked it more towards the end, like I said. But I'm very curious to see how they go about these next few episodes. I think this is one of those shows that's going to be very crucial early on to see how they manage things. And the whole don't trust Harry thing with the Ouija board. First of all, you say, Mom, are you there? Using a Ouija board. And, you know, if there was an evil entity that wanted to try and get into their heads or get them to not trust their white lighter, wouldn't they say, yes, I'm your mom. And by the way, don't trust Harry. I mean, it's a Ouija board. Come on. I'm not saying Ouija boards aren't legit. That is not what I'm saying. So don't get get on me about that. Don't at me about that. What I'm saying is, is that, come on, you don't really know you're talking to mom. That, that's all I'm saying. Mom was a powerful witch, sure. But we don't know that that's who you're talking to. But I do like the little tease about how, oh, Harry might be evil after all sort of thing at the end. So I did thought I did think that, that was kind of neat. And there were, don't get me wrong, there were good things that this show did. And there are things that I'm glad this show's doing and I'm glad this show is talking about. I'm just saying you didn't have to do that in this first episode, this first episode should have been about character building for the sisters and their bond together once Macy came into the picture. And I feel like they didn't really do that. I like them. I, I like each of the actresses and the characters that they play. And I liked Harry and Rupert Evans's his portrayal of the white lighter. What I'm, what I'm saying is, is that I feel like you should have focused more on that. And obviously you had to have them use their powers for the first time in this episode. Don't have a problem with that at all. I just, I feel like they could have given this a little bit more time and focused on that 
a little bit more and get me invested into these characters more than they actually did in this first episode. So I think episodes two and three going to be very critical for this reboot. And let me know what you think at the show at down and nerdy seven five seven on Twitter. Very curious to see whether you agree with me or not on this. That's going to do it for my spoiler field review of the charmed reboot on the CW up next. Going to stick with the CW on my spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 premiere next on the Down and Nerdy... Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Podcast. This is Lexa Doig from Arrow, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Open up those cell doors. It's time for our spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 premiere. And yeah, things are not going well for Oliver in prison at all. Again, plenty of spoilers here going forward. But I'm not even sure that's the most interesting part of this episode. Other than we get to see Oliver sort of make this transition to... I'm just going to do my time. I'm going to lay low. I'm going to let them beat the crap out of me and just try and survive my time in here until I get to get let out to the, I'm going to fight back. I need to fight back because that's what a hero does, Oliver. And it didn't take very long. And I'm glad that they didn't really drag that out. I was kind of struggling with whether or not I wanted to see that play out a little bit more, but I'm actually glad that they didn't drag that out because it it just seemed unnecessary. Of course, it took a visit from Felicity for him to snap out of that, but I'll get to the whole Felicity thing in just a second. But I'm not sure Oliver being in prison is the most interesting part of the episode because of what's going on outside of prison. And of course, Felicity and William are in protective custody, but I found myself really drawn to the whole Dinah being the captain of the SCPD now. And then you've got Renee, who's sort of teaching self-defense in this boxing class and how he's, you know, they can't be vigilantes anymore. That was part of the deal. But he really wants to still be involved and help the community. And some of his students are pushing him saying, hey, you know, people are being robbed. You guys are doing nothing. We know who you are, even though it was nobody said anything. We know who you are. So what are you going to do about it? And, you know, Dinah thinks that they should do nothing, even though, you know, she's a police officer. She's doing something, but he thinks they should be out there. She doesn't. That's kind of where they stand on that. So I really liked that kind of push and pull. And, of course, Diggle being with Argus and, you know, we you heard the interviews and them teasing that they would be using Argus's resources at the SCPD. And they certainly didn't stop at at doing that this episode. We also have a new Emerald Archer. Yeah, there, there's a green arrow out there crossing off names and taking down bad guys. And obviously it's not Oliver. And 
Well, there, there are certain now, let's get into this for a second here, because there's a who is it not and who could it be? And I'm going to cross a few names off the list right now. First of all, William, I don't think it's William. And, and, and that's based on something a little bit later on in the episode. I could be wrong, but I really, really don't think it's William. And I'm not sure how he could pull that off being in protective custody anyway. That's a whole other issue. Is it Roy Harper? Probably not. But maybe, although I doubt that they would go back to that again. It's obviously not Diggle because he's busy at Argus. So is this someone that we haven't seen before? Is this someone that we have seen before? That's going to be a little bit of a callback. I don't think it's Thea either. Remember, she went off with Roy to try and figure out what was going on with her with, with her life. And I, I just think that there's a lot of here's who it's not. And I'm not sure there's a whole lot of answers as to who it actually is. So I'm not even sure I can speculate at this point. This It's a possibility. We haven't even seen this character before. And showrunner Beth Schwartz has done a couple of interviews since then, one with Entertainment Weekly, where she kind of danced around a little bit. All we really know is that this person is going to be revealed. Another thing I thought was really interesting, and maybe my only real problem with this episode, was, of course, Ricardo Diaz hasn't been caught. We find that he's been underground, the FBI Hasn't been able to find him. Well, he's not really underground because he finds Felicity and William in protective custody and tries to kill them. Now, here's the deal. You know how vicious Ricardo Diaz is, how good of a fighter he is, right? And, you know, he took Oliver down a couple of times on his own, and yet Felicity was able to fight him off. First of all, very good for Felicity. I'm not saying that, you know, she's not tough because Felicity's proven that she's tough. But we've got a trained fighter and a very good one in Ricardo Diaz, and he could not subdue Felicity. And they don't really show how she gets out of that. That was the other thing, at least not that I can remember anyway. Maybe my head was turned or, you know, I fell asleep for two minutes or something and and didn't know it. I don't know, but I'm not sure we really saw how she was able to get out of that because obviously William gets out. We don't really see how Felicity gets out of that. We just know that she does, and she's scarred up, and that's when she goes to visit Oliver. There's also this mysterious dude at the coffee shop, and if we learn anything from The Flash last season, mysterious people at coffee shops that randomly start talking to your main characters are hardly ever a brush-off, especially since we don't just see this guy once. We see him twice. He asks Felicity out. It's awkward. Maybe, Maybe there's nothing to it. Okay, maybe I'm reading too much into this. It just seems like this guy is going to be more important going forward. Either he's like the mole for Diaz and he's the one that's keeping tabs on where Felicity's going to be or something like that. Or maybe he's something much more than that that we don't know about. I, I think that that will flesh itself out. Who Maybe he's the maybe he's the green arrow. Maybe he's the guy that's jumping around in the costume. I don't know. There's just It just doesn't seem like this is a random occurrence. That's... That's about as much as I'll get into with that. I just thought it was a little weird that Felicity could just sort of fight off Ricardo Diaz. And, of course, Laurel, Black Siren, is now the district attorney. That's a juicy little nugget. But, again, we don't really see a whole lot of her. We get to see Oliver in prison a lot. We get to see a lot of callbacks to past villains that have been on the show and, you know, they try to, to broker a deal with him and he won't take it to help them out and sort of make his life easier. And he doesn't do it. And then eventually he starts fighting back. And it seems like one of the guards, or at least the captain of the guards, 
is kind of looking out for Oliver, but not really, because clearly there, there's a lot of corruption in the prison. I think that kind of goes without saying, and that's kind of a typical theme of shows like this, so that, that shouldn't be too surprising. But at the same time, it looks like the captain of the guards, at least, at least he seems like the captain of the guards. I'm not sure that was confirmed or not in the episode. Seems like he's kind of looking out for Oliver a little bit and sort of reminds me of Butch from Gotham. If I'm being honest, it sort of reminds me of Drew Powell. I don't know why, but that, but that's the vibe I get. And it's a comfortable vibe for me. It's a good place. I like that he reminds me, reminds me of Drew Powell because Drew Powell is a good dude. And I think that this guy will do the right thing in the end. But it seems like there was a reawakening, right? Of all of these characters. It's just, things just felt fresh in a seventh season. And I haven't even talked about the fact that we're not doing flashbacks anymore. We're doing flash forwards because we find out in the flash forward that it's William that's going to lean in you for some strange reason. And oh, you coy folks at the San Diego Comic-Con press room for Arrow. And Colton Haynes was, Haynes was so excited to talk about what was going on with Roy this season? And we find out that we get old man Harper. And now, now don't get me wrong, Colton. You look great. Look great in the older garb. But we get to see an older Roy Harper on Lian Yu, tracked down by William. Apparently, they he doesn't know who William is, at least not as an adult anyway. So I'm not saying that he's never going to meet William this season or has or isn't going to see him at all or anything like that. But, you know, when there's a gap there and someone ages, you don't necessarily recognize them right off the bat. And if we're being honest, younger William that we see in today's timeline and the older William that we see in the, I think it's 20 years later, they don't look hardly anything alike. So you wouldn't run into this kid and go, oh, yeah, that's William. I know you. So he has to hold up, you know, a good callback to the to the carved arrowhead that his dad, that, that Felicity gives William, that was his dad, says, you knew my father, and that's how he knows it's William, and, you know, the rest is history. So I think that it's cool that we're doing flash-forwards. You know that I haven't really been a fan of the flashbacks in the past for Arrow, and I was kind of glad to see them go. But these flash-forwards seem like they could actually mean something. I don't know why they mean something right now, because right now there's really no context for why they're being done. I think that that's something that's going to flesh itself out. And I don't really want to know in the first episode anyway. You don't have to give me that information now. But what you do have to do is not wait forever to give me that information. Because there are shows that do that. And you wait, 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 wait. And you really aren't getting anything. And that's when it gets frustrating. So I hope that Arrow does kind of sort start to peel that onion a little bit more. It might even happen in the second episode of the season. At least we'll get a why are you here. I would like to think that we'll get a why are you here. I would think that that would be one of the first questions that Roy would ask of William is what are you doing here? Why are you here? And maybe we'll find out what Oliver's fate is in the future. Who knows? Maybe this all ties into the crossover as well. There might be a reason for all of this and it might have to do with the crossover that's coming in December. There's just a lot going on here and a lot of it is very, very good. And then you've got this weird guy in prison with Oliver, you know, kind of a sheepish guy. I think his name was Stanley. And again, he just seems like a guy that is focused on way too much to not be there for a reason. And if you saw the little preview for the next episode, he's going to be hanging around with Oliver a little bit more. So is this just a guy that's sort of going to help Oliver along in his time in prison? Or are we going to find out that he's more important 
going forward at some point? Or is he just somebody that Oliver looks at as someone that needs to remind him that he needs to be a hero? So just seems like there was a lot going on in this season seven premiere for Arrow. And while I enjoyed last season, it looks like this season is off to a good start. And I can't wait to see where all this stuff goes because there's some stuff that we haven't even touched on yet. And I really hope that we get to do that in the coming weeks. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Arrow Season 7 premiere. And up next, you know there's still nerd news to get to. We'll do it on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Kari Walgren, the voice of Haruko in FLCO. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Reboots, release dates, and cancellations. Oh my, so much to get to. It's time for nerd news. And you know, for somebody that's supposed to be so fast, things seem to be moving awfully slowly for Ezra Miller's Flash solo movie. And more bad news, unfortunately. According to Variety, the movie's been delayed now until 2021 at the earliest, with production looking to start now in 2019 so and variety goes on to say in the same story that now it looks like batman and superman might both be cat recast in dc films but that is still in the rumor stage at this point but going back to the flash I- i'm just gonna ask should this even happen now i mean at this point it seems like everything at dc films isn't necessarily resetting because obviously you're not going to get rid of gal gadot you're not going to get rid of Jason Momoa. Likely not, because, I mean, it looks like the Aquaman movie is going to be pretty good. There, there are certain things you're probably not going to redo. But, uh, I mean, if you're going to recast Superman and Batman, and I totally understand both of those if that's what's going to happen. This Flash movie didn't really make a whole lot of sense. And, yeah, I know the argument of, you know, using Flashpoints, reset everything. And I'm not even sure you need to do that now. I, I mean... It doesn't seem like they're going for a connected universe going forward, or at least not in the short term. And maybe they're going to bring them together at some point and do another Justice League movie. I'm sure that that would be in the cards if everything worked out correctly. But it seems like the focus is going to be on these solo franchises now, which I absolutely think is the right decision and not a bad thing if that's what they're going to decide to do. So at this point, is there a Flash movie even worth doing? And I mean, there's comments on... Our Facebook page, facebook.com slash down and nerdy, where fans are saying, hey, we've already got a Flash. You know, his name is Grant Gustin, and he's doing a pretty darn good job on TV. Now, then that begs another question. Does this whole Superman recasting thing, which has been rumored for a while, and, you know, they had that weird thing with Henry Cavill not too long ago, does this open the door for Tyler Hoechlin to bring Superman to TV on the CW. And Fandom Wire actually reported something. They said it was an exclusive. I want to talk about this because it doesn't seem to be in a whole lot of other places right now, as of me recording the show anyway, was that that is what is going to happen and that the Elseworld DC crossover is going to be kind of used as a backdoor pilot for a Superman TV series, of course, with Tyler and Bitsy Tullock, who would be playing Lois Lane and that they're hoping that if, you know, the response is good, they'll just roll right into a TV series. I do think Superman probably fits better on TV. I don't know how that would uh, affect Krypton at all on sci-fi. I really don't think it would. I don't see why it would. So, I don't know. I just think that that would be a good move. And I think that Tyler Hoechlin has done a, a good job so far 
as Superman in the limited time that we've seen him. I can't imagine that this crossover is going to change my mind and make me think that he's not doing a good job. Bitsy Tullock's certainly very, very accomplished, and I'm sure he's going to do a great job as Lois Lane. So, I mean, if this were to happen, it wouldn't shock me at all. And the Batwoman show, which looks like that's probably happening, if we get two shows out of this, then I'm happy. And that opens the door for, you know, if Arrow does end or if Legends ends. I don't think The Flash is ending anytime soon or maybe even Supergirl ends. This opens the door for something else to take their place. And you've still got a nice lineup of DC TV shows to choose from. And let's not forget DC Universe streaming service. That could also be a home for any of these shows at some point, should they get canceled or moved around. Speaking of Bitsy Tullock, though, did you see on Twitter that picture that she posted of her, Melissa, and Tyler on a farm setting? Does that mean we're not only going to get Gotham, but Smallville as well? in this DC TV crossover, because it seems like that's what's going to happen. And I'm super excited if that's the case. We're just acknowledging that so many things exist in the Arrowverse now. It's just such an exciting time, not to mention all these premieres have been pretty darn good so far. So from premieres and things that are being pushed back to things that have been flat-out canceled, and that is Marvel's Iron Fist by Netflix. That's right, Deadline reports that That series is now no more and is the first Netflix Marvel series to actually be canceled. Now, they went on to say that Danny Rand might still appear in some other series down the road that, of course, according to Entertainment Weekly. And there was a very interesting quote in the original Deadline article that said that the story of Danny Rand may live on. And that was straight from Disney. So I'm wondering if we're going to get a migration over to the Disney Play streaming service for Iron Fist at some point. You know, there's the rumors of the, you know, the Loki and the Scarlet Witch series. We talked about that on a previous show. But it just seems like we could also get a Daughters of the Dragon series with Colleen Wing and Misty Knight, which is kind of the direction it seems like they wanted to go at the end of this season. You know, you've got Danny and Ward going off doing their thing and Colleen and Misty staying behind to protect the city. So maybe maybe this is the way of Netflix saying, okay, well, we're canceling this, but we're going to give you this. But then we don't even know what the shelf life is for Marvel and Netflix series anyway because of the Disney Play streaming service. So there's a really a lot going up in the air right now. And I just think it was an odd time to cancel it. Season one was so bad. I don't think there's real much, really much debate about that. But season two was such a vast improvement. And something that they could really be proud of, I thought, especially going from what you had to where you ended up at the end of season two, one of the biggest jumps of improvement for a series that I think I've ever seen. And just me personally, it was such a huge night and day difference how good it was. So it just seems odd to cancel it now, but maybe this is just their way of moving forward with a different kind of story, but still leaving the door open for Danny Rand to appear either on the Disney streaming service or on these other series. Wouldn't be surprised at all to see him play a big part in the next season of Luke Cage. Of course, Misty said that, you know, might need to keep Danny around because the last time she saw Luke, she didn't like what she saw. Yeah, there could be a little something like that going on. And maybe that leads us to Heroes for Hire. Saying that this is the end of Marvel's Iron Fist doesn't mean it's the end of Danny Rand. And I think that that's what is kind of getting lost in all the shuffle here. 
From the TV world to the video game world, you know, Red, Red Dead Redemption 2 is going to be coming out. Going to be a major campaign, a major undertaking. And it looks like the employees certainly had a lot of major work on their hands because Rockstar co-founder Dan Hauser was doing an interview with New York Magazine and said that some of the writers and the staff were doing 100-hour work weeks. And that, you know, for anybody that's in a 9-to-5 world, you know, we all have our days where we stay late at work, right? But you hear 100-hour work week, that's like 14-hour days. At the same time, this is the video game industry. This is not something that should be shocking to anyone. This is stuff that we've heard about many, many times. And then Hauser, of course, goes on to kind of backtrack a little on the statement saying it was kind of taken out of context. It was misquoted. And spoke, speaking with Kotaku saying that the workload isn't required and that there's more. this was more of like in the final three weeks push for the game and not the years that the game was in development. So, But at the same time, that's pretty brutal no matter what industry you're in. I was actually going to be a gaming programmer at some point. I, I have a computer science degree. That's what I went to school for. I went to school for coding, and then I realized, even in my college days, as I'm pulling all-nighters writing code, and this is just for college projects. This isn't even for a job. I just realized that maybe this isn't something that I want to do for a living. I'm glad I, I learned it. I, I learned a lot for sure, and I'm, and I'm very happy that I did that. But at the same time, these working conditions have been a problem in the video game industry for a long time. And I'm not, I'm not saying anything even specifically directed to Rockstar here. You could take what Hauser said however you like and interpret it however you like. And, and whether it's right or wrong, that's for you to decide and that's not for me to pass judgment on. That's not what I'm doing. I'm simply giving you the facts as they are right in front of us based on what he said and nothing else. So I don't understand how this is a really shocking thing. And, you know, part of it is the demand for these games coming out on time and being well done and being bug free, right? So as much as I've said on the show, you know, I'd rather they take their time get it right, and it seems like they've certainly taken their time with Red Dead 2, being that it's been in development for so long, but nothing's really worth having to have a human being put their body and their and their well-being through that, is there? I mean, if we had to wait a little bit longer for this game to come out, wouldn't it be worth it so someone could go home and, you know, you know actually be able to sleep eat a nice warm meal, spend time with their family, do something that's not working. And I'm sure it's fun. I'm not saying it's not. Hey, I pulled plenty of hours here putting this show together in the Down and Nerdy podcast. There's a lot of stuff that goes on when this mic turns off. It's not over. I'm not pulling 100-hour work weeks. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, there's stuff I'm doing quite a lot just for this show. I can't imagine what an undertaking would be like putting something like Red Dead Redemption 2 together. But... You have to understand that even though it wasn't all the time, that is a brutal, brutal workload for anyone to take on in any capacity. I really, really hope that that becomes a thing of the past at some point. And I know that a lot of companies are starting to head in that direction. And maybe now that this has kind of come out, whether it be a slip of the tongue or not, in the interview, maybe now that this has come out, even in a final three-week push, maybe this is the kind of thing... It starts to raise the radar a little bit, and maybe this will happen less and less 
in the video game industry. That's the hope anyway. How about some quick hits for you? A little, some quick nerd news stories. The Dracula series that's going to be coming to the BBC, according to Variety, and Sherlock creators Stephen Moffat and Mark Gaddis are going to be developing it. It's going to be the same Sherlock format. We're going to get three 90-minute episodes and however many seasons based in Victorian London in the 19th century. I love this idea. The last Dracula series that we got, let's just say didn't work out too well. That's me being kind of kind. And the last Dracula, Dracula movie we got didn't work out too well either, quite frankly. So with the Universal Monster stuff all in turmoil, I'm down to see what Moffat and Gaddis have in store for the, for the character. I think it's a cool way to be able to tell that story using the Sherlock format. I know fans want Benedict Cumberbatch as Dracula, but Benedict Cumberbatch can't be everywhere and do everything. We just need to resign ourselves to that fact. I wouldn't say no to Benedict Cumberbatch playing Dracula, but I wouldn't hold my breath on it either. So if you are, I probably would stop because you do need to breathe. We have more casting news now, this time for the Pennyworth series. It's going to be coming to Epics. Of course, this is the prequel series for Batman's famous butler, Alfred Pennyworth. And Jack Bannon is going to be playing the title character. You might remember him from Ripper Street. You have Ben Aldridge from Fleabag and other stuff that's going to be playing Thomas Wayne on the show. I love the description of Alfred, though, that was released by Warner Brothers. And it's I'm going to read this as word for word as I possibly can. He's described as a boyishly handsome, cheerful, charming, and clever young man trying to come to terms with the kind-hearted person that he used to be and the calculated killer that he's become, you know, because he was, you know, he's a secret British agent and had to do some stuff that's not exactly considered wholesome and, you know, kind-hearted. So it just seems like I know fans get upset like, well, we're never going to see Batman in this series. What's the point? Alfred's always been such an interesting and intriguing character that despite the best efforts of a lot of shows and movies, hasn't really been given the due that he's really deserved. I know he's gotten some of that in the comics, but I really hope that this epic series gives us a chance to really explore Alfred's backstory and his early interactions with Thomas Wayne as well. I think that this could be really, really neat, and I hope a lot of fans decide to give this a chance because I'm really excited for this and was excited for it before anyone was even cast right from the get-go. I'm thinking, yes, finally, Alfred gets his due because Alfred's one of those characters that almost gets forgotten in the whole Batman mythos, which is kind of ridiculous. But that just tells you how many great characters are in that Batman story, right? So now Alfred finally gets his turn, and this is something that could run for quite a few seasons, too. That's another thing that excites me. And, you know, Gotham's going to be ending, and then Pennyworth will pick up, and hopefully that'll fill the void for because I love Gotham, and I'm going to need something to scratch that itch, and I'm really hoping that Pennyworth is able to do that when it comes out on Epics. Something that I've also been waiting to come back. I'm not sure if I wanted to come back in this form. We'll see. Jennifer Garner says to the Hollywood Hollywood Reporter that an Alias reboot is going to be coming. Remember Alias with Victor Garber? Bradley Cooper was in the show. And it was you know about Sidney Bristow and not knowing who she really was and being recruited to be a secret agent sort of thing. That's it's not exactly it. There's way more to it than that, but that is sort of the gist and didn't know that her dad was part of this secret organization either. 
but the, basically the, the thing that I'm trying to tell you here is that it looks like the show is going to be coming back. She says that no one's talked to her about it yet. It appears like it's in the very, very early stages, though. She also said she'd be very angry if they didn't at least have her as a guest star at some point. But, I mean, maybe that would be weird because if it's a reboot, then I guess it doesn't make sense. I'm not sure it's going to be much of a revival. I mean, I guess you don't need Bradley Cooper and Victor Garber and, and everybody. You don't necessarily need them to do this. Maybe you could do this with just Jennifer Garner. I would tend to think Jennifer Garner is going to be too busy for this too, but money-wise alone, it might not be a possibility for these characters to be coming back. So I'm I'm all for seeing what they've got with an Alias reboot. I'm not going to say no to it because I love the show and I wouldn't mind seeing it come back. I just hope they say, stay true to the way the show was before because I think it's still relevant today, honestly. If you go back and watch Alias, it's still pretty relevant so I'm not sure that you would really even need to change a whole lot, but I don't necessarily want the same thing either. I'm just interested to see if it makes sense. If it makes sense, do it. If it doesn't, let it lie. Leave it alone. And I've, you know, I've got that my my DVDs of Alias at home that I can watch if I, if need be. That's gonna do it for quite a lot of nerd news this week. Up next, let's hop on the Wave Rider and talk about this coming season of DC's Legends of Tomorrow with the cast and producers. That's all next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I think it's safe to say that no show in the entire Arrowverse has evolved more than DC's Legends of Tomorrow, now being paired with the Arrow, by the way, on Monday nights, premiering on October the 22nd. And got a chance to sit down with the cast of producers at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, starting with Maisie Richardson-Sellers, who plays Amaya, or does she? My first question to her was, you know, talking about the roller coaster that she sort of had last season with her character and asking her where things pick up for her this season. I never expected she'd give this answer at the time. You kind of had a roller coaster season this past year, so where do things sort of pick up for you when we come into this season? Well, it picks up with me being a completely different character. Um, so I'm playing a character called Charlie now, who is basically a magical kind of fugitive, um, rebel kid, anarchist, sort of punk rock kid. She's tough, she's cheeky, she's out for herself, like not sure if she's good or bad. Um, and yes, yeah, so there's a massive contrast to Maya, which is great for me to play, and I think it'll be fun for the fans to see someone so different. And also the legends have to react to someone who looks like someone they know but is completely different inside um, and why is she here what's her game what's her ambition okay. so once that started the question started flowing and the next one was how do you feel about your new character's entry into the show when we do see her it's awesome it's really cool it's unexpected it's um it's so far from amaya which is kind of what i wanted i think if you're going to do something like this you should go the full way um and yeah, she definitely rubs some people the wrong way from the beginning and uses the weaknesses of others to her advantage. Next up, this question I really loved, and it was that how does it feel to be on a show where anything is really possible? I mean, it's so exciting because, you know, you imagine filming like seven months of the year doing the same character in the same set like it could get a bit monotonous whereas for us every week we're in a different time period every week we're hanging out with different like heroes from history so it keeps it fresh for us and I think every time we go off with a different pairing it brings out a new side of each character as well so you're constantly fleshing out your character in a new dimension so I like it Next question from Maisie Richardson-Sellers was, how do you feel about the addition of Constantine and how will he interact with your character, you know, being a magical character after all? I mean, 
I think it's going to be great because they're both cheeky, they're both playful. However, I am a magical fugitive, and his whole life purpose is to get rid of magical fugitives. So, if anything, I think he's going to be the one who's the hardest to win over. Um, but if they do, I think they could be a really strong, powerful duo, definitely. My next question to Maisie Richardson Sellers was you know, how Maya had that very rich heritage that she got to explore. Could we see something like that? with this new character as well. Amaya had a really rich heritage that you got to explore throughout those seasons yeah. playing her. What about this new character? Are we going to see some sort of background to that as well? Yeah, I think it's actually, she's actually, she doesn't remember where she came from or who she truly is. So a lot of her journey is actually the opposite. It's like finding out who she is um, and what that entails for her. At the moment, she's just like out for herself. She's been imprisoned in this sort of like magical dimension and now she's finally free. So she wants to have as much fun as she can and, you know, do whatever she can, but then she's now realizing the consequences of that as well later on in the season, um, and having to build these new relationships as they sort of try and find out who she actually is. So you get to play like kind of in reverse this time. Yeah, exactly, which is awesome. Next up, it was Dominic Purcell, yes, Mick Rory himself, and Kito Shimizu, the executive producer of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. First up, was pretty obvious. How much more wild can things get in season four for the Legends? Oh, much, much. Uh, again, it is sort of hard to beat where we left off yes. last season with a giant fluffy avatar beating <laughs> up a crazy demon. Yeah, how do you top that? But, you know, how we're, do you top we're, that? we're trying, no, no, we're trying. No, no. I think that's the great thing about yeah. Legends. We're actually allowed and given space to create and do anything because we have jumped the shark. I mean, everyone knows that. Oh, yeah, shark's long gone. Long gone. <laughs> yeah. So now we can do anything we want to do. And it's and it's awesome because at this point, you know, with our the way that we fit into the Arrowverse is like we're kind of the ones who, yeah, who get to have get to explore. It's all becoming these not really like the Arrowverse yeah. anymore. It's not. We're not like it's obviously it's a it's its own little thing. Now. Yeah. With Constantine coming into the picture, you know, you kind of had to ask, especially with one of the producers sitting at the table, how he's going to shake up the team this season. In a lot of ways, I mean, his the energy that not just the character but the actor brings onto the show is, you know, it's. It's, it's quite bold, and he's you know he's very brash and aggressive. This is the character, not the actor. He's still he's still um, but um, you know, and he comes in and he sort of like gets everyone going. I mean, yeah. he's like this is his world. This the magical creatures are his world. So he he comes in expecting to just have everyone like you do this, you do this, you do this, and then Sarah has to be like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm the captain. Like you can't boss my people around. And so it's an interesting like push and pull there. And also he's not gonna just fall in line you know he's not just like he's not a legend right off the bat like that's something people are very interested to. when yeah. i was doing the lineup there they were saying i can't wait to see how mick and constantine mm -hmm. react and already it's in play oh, it's great it's it, great it, and already it's like these two are going to have a, a jousting match for quite some time yes. it's, and it's going to it's going to be hysterical yeah. Yeah, it's so funny. the popularity of bebo really took on a life of its own after the first time we saw him last season so the question was asked you know did you expect Bebo to end up being this popular. We didn't. I mean, huh. it was it was sort of it surprised us. I mean, we Crazy. I think once we saw the creature in action and we heard the voice and it came to life, we were like, this is something special. Like it was. Oh, absolutely. You know, it was supposed to be just a one-off, and then we were like, I remember, this, this uh, yeah. is part of our universe now. I remember getting on set, seeing that little blue thing, and I just was, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> like really? <laughs> and that's the beautiful thing about legends. You don't know what don't know you're gonna get. Go. My question was kind of a quick one. They were talking about, you know, Mick exploring his creative side. So I remembered what happened last season. 
and tried to get a little bit more information on what we might see this season. Well, we saw that he had a creative side yes. this past season, so maybe a little bit of that. Maybe. We don't, we don't actually know yet. They haven't told me. They won't tell me. <laughs> That's all they've given me. We're going to expand on it. That's all you need to know for the fight. Okay. <laughs> Next up, it was Nick Zano, of course, who plays Nate on the show, and then Phil Clemmer, the executive producer. First up was a question for Nick, and he said that he wasn't familiar with the comics when he first got the role in past interviews. And someone asked him if that's changed since being on the show. I may know less now. Uh, oh, yeah? Yes, because uh, the way we do the comics, is, like, we do Legends completely different than anything. Like, my character's original backstory yeah. was an opioid addict with one leg. And when I discovered that, I hit up Mark and yeah. Phil, and I was just like, where are we going? Are we doing this approach? Like, no, 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 no. Like, don't worry about it. We're not, you have both legs. And um, since then, I just bailed away from the comics and stayed in our wheelhouse. And uh, yeah, so I know less. With the addition of magic and the kind of history not really going away, but taking a back seat in this season, it seems like, I had to ask Nick if, you know, things are going to change with his character, with that magical element bring, being brought in, how will that affect him this season? Things should change for your character a little bit this upcoming season because we're entering a magical, mystical realm, and, you know, your character's had that historical background a little bit. Are you still going to see some of that, or is your character going to be a little bit fish out of water this year? Um, first of all, that means Constantine has a lot of dialogue, which is great, because historical stuff in a page length is, especially fictional historical things. Yeah. Memorizing dates, times, and <laughs> and things that don't exist is difficult. But uh, I don't think it's fish out of water. I think Nate segued into being a legend. Like, being a legend and adding his thing that he adds to being a, a member of the team. He definitely takes more of a personal tone this season. Uh, like his own background, you go into like Nate's life before Legends, mm -hmm. and um, see some conflict there, and knowing where he's from, and some origin stuff, which is really exciting. And we shot one episode already of it, and uh, it feels brand new to me. For my third season, our first episode was like, wow, this feels different, yeah. and it feels good. But then we went back to doing some big ass Legend shit, you know. Yeah, I think, like, you know, you're such a, a, a funny guy and character. Like, my immediate question is, like, what is he hiding? Mm -hmm. And so we're finally getting around to the question. You know, people who are funny... Have been. Yeah. And, and the idea that you chose this career that we've established you're these line of military men you know we really wanted to get into Nate's relationship with his father you know whom he's let down and I think it's interesting you know you're so confident and, and irreverent like to find that one person that can kind of take you back to that dark place because I mean the truth is even when you're a grown-up you're still someone's kid and yeah. like I, I, I don't know I think that's a fun thing to explore this season yeah it's, it's gonna be good you know Legends of Tomorrow really taking on a life of its own someone had to ask is there anything that's too out there even for DC's Legends of Tomorrow I don't know I mean there was this pitch uh, on the table for the premiere where I came into the room and 
writers had been working by themselves, and they were so proud. You can tell. You go in the room, they're so proud of something, like a cat who's killed a bird, and they drop it, and I was just like, whoa. And I saw, kind of told them how I felt about it, and I left the room, and I could tell everybody was really disappointed. And then I came back into the room just being like, I wonder what they did with it. And they gave me a version where they barely tweaked it. It's still a dead bird. And I was kind of like, all right, you guys win. We're going to do it. Oh, man. It's like the inmates are running the asylum. It's one of those things where, you know, we found this spirit together, and nobody knows quite knows where it came from. Uh, but... When we talk about it, uh, most of the time in the room is not cracking jokes. It's actually just like trying to get at the emotional truth of these situations that I guess if you look at it from afar, it's crazy, but we're so close to it. Like we're talking about it like we're breaking, you know, whatever, the Sopranos. You know, we don't, we're not thinking like what's the goofiest thing we can come up with. It's like how can this be real? And then when the goofiness, the stuff toy turns into a colossus and gets into a fight, I think that allows people to feel something other than that's crazy, you know? I think like, I don't know, when everybody's hugging in that crater, I don't know, it feels it like an honest moment. Thank you all. Yeah. By the way, we have a Sopranos episode coming up. That's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> One theme that I really got talking to everyone involved with this show is that there's just, there's no fear anymore. It seems like it, you know, they know who they are. They know what they're doing and fans are loving them for it. And that's one thing this, this show, when I, when I criticized the show in the past, it just didn't seem like they knew what they wanted to be. And then they just found this crazy out there, lovable screw ups personality that they've adopted the last couple of seasons. And it's been so enjoyable. And these characters are so enjoyable and this show just feels so different. And that was the other theme that seemed to go through everyone I talked to about this show is that it's different. It almost doesn't fit into the Arrowverse, but it does. It's just so unique, and that's one of the things I've really loved about DC's Legends of Tomorrow. And I can't wait to see what Season 4 has in store when it begins this Monday, October the 22nd, right after Arrow on the CW. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks so much to Warner Brothers and DC for letting me be a part of the DC's Legends of Tomorrow press room at San Diego Comic-Con. You want to know more about past shows, even past Arrowverse interviews that we've done, there's a ton of them. Go to downandnerdypodcast.com. You can also subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to us and don't miss any episodes. Of course, follow us on social media as well. Facebook.com slash down and nerdy and then at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly. Be good to your fellow nerds. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. 
and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.